0: Hello everyone, welcome back to the PNR Blast podcast. This is your host, Ben Abramoff, here once again with Dr. Erin McCartney. Hey guys. As you guys probably have noticed, we've changed up the format of these podcasts somewhat And we're now doing more of a quick news briefing on articles in PM&R. We have one today uh, that Dr. McCartney will be sharing with us. Uh, Do you wanna go ahead and uh, tell us about that article?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So the article I'm reviewing today is out of the New England Journal of Medicine. It's titled, uh, Trial of Decompressive Craniectomy for Traumatic Intracranial Hypertension. Uh, also has a cool acronym of RESCUE-ICP, which stands for Randomized Evaluation of Surgery with Craniotomy for Uncontrollable Elevation of Intracranial Pressure. So, getting into the study, um, this was an international study done in Europe, multi-center, uh, randomized control trial. Um, they selected patients over a 10-year period and ended up with 408 patients that had severe traumatic brain injuries. Uh, that also developed refractory uh, intracranial hypertension with levels greater than 25. Um, they excluded patients that had blown pupils, who had severe bleeding disorders, or who just had an unsurvivable injury from the study population and ended up with 408. Uh, these were randomly placed into a surgical intervention group, which received a decompressive craniectomy, and uh, a continued medical management group. And from there, uh, they monitored several factors, but their primary outcome they were watching was the Glasgow Outcome Scale at a six-month time period. And this scale really looks at a person's function, anywhere from death to having um, no injury related to the actual uh, TBI uh, at the six-month period. So a little bit of background on how they um, managed these patients. Uh, all patients started out being treated the same way, They monitored their CPP, so their goal was greater than 60. If you remember, um, CPP is uh, the MAP minus ICP. So um, wanting to ensure that the central perfusion pressure was enough. And um, they also regulated their temperature, blood glucose, oxygen saturation, and PaCO2. They wanted to keep that slightly low. If these were not controlled and the ICP was still high, they would move on to further medical management, which included in the first tier of treatment, sedation, analgesia, head elevation, and sometimes uh, neuromuscular paralysis. If this did not control their parameters and the ICP remained elevated, they would move on to placing a ventriculostomy if there was not an EVD already in place, providing uh, blood pressure augmentation, um, osmotherapy, Further, decreasing the PaCO2 or a hypothermia protocol. All the patients receive these two tiers of treatment. And this is, um, if they still continue to have ICP greater than 25, this is the point at which they would be randomized through a central randomization process to get either a decompressive craniectomy or continued medical management. And the continued medical management could include, but didn't have to include, um, the addition of barbiturates. Um, to the other treatments that they are already getting
0: so how long did they wait to kind of go through these stages of um, treatment
1: you know that's a good question they didn't um, address that directly in the article but i would imagine they kind of just kept moving through things and if they didn't respond they just move on to the next one it didn't really lay out which part of each tier they had to try first Um, i think they left some of that up to the treatment team Um, but these are just general um, regulations and ideas that Guidelines. Guidelines. Uh, Thanks. (laughs) These are uh, just guidelines that they could follow to treat the patients. Um, Cool. Yeah. So if the patients were randomized to receive the craniectomy, they did also provide a recommendation to the surgeons, you know, if it was a focal swelling to do a unilateral or hemicranie. And if it was more diffuse, to go ahead and do the bifrontal cranny. But these, were again, were just recommendations. Again, another recommendation is that they wanted to have it done within four to six hours of the randomization process. So making the decision to go ahead with a craniectomy. And actually, the study um, uh, physicians were able to get this done on an average of 2.2 hours for randomization. So that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, so just a, a few other notes on this. Uh, they did look and make sure that you know all the patients, no matter which way they were randomized, received similar interventions in the tier one and tier two. So they did look at that. It's also important to note that both study groups were eligible to receive the treatment in the other group if the physicians deemed that appropriate so you know actually 37.2 percent of those in the medical group ended up receiving a decompressive craniectomy at some point in their hospital stay so there there is a little bit of overlap there so once they did this they looked at those two groups at six months out determined you know what their functional status on the glasgow outcome scale was and they looked at a few other parameters as well. They did use the intention to treat uh, analysis um, to try to stick to what the planned study was. They first assessed for differences within the distribution of the Glasgow outcome scales between the two groups to to find out that they were in fact different. And then from there, they kind of just had a descriptive analysis of what those um, different percentages were. Um, so, getting into the data, uh, looking at six months from the TBI, at what their functional status was. First, uh, looking at death. So, obviously, the lowest outcome on the Glasgow Outcome Scale um, in the decompressive craniectomy group, 26.9%, and this was compared to 48.9% in the medical management groups. Holy moly. This was um, quite a big difference, Um, and something that has been shown in other studies and is kind of a critique of decompressive craniac is that you save more people, but you also have more people that are just in a vegetative state or very severely disabled that survived. Um, Did that bear out? (laughs) So, yeah, an important part of this study (laughs) is that they kind of went a little further, Uh, and as I go through these results, just keep in mind that What they wanted to prove was that as a third tier therapy, so now this isn't an early intervention or anything, this is everything else failed. Does decompressive craniectomy help with functional outcomes? Okay, so obviously it still helped as far as mortality rate quite a few, quite a bit actually. When we go into vegetative state, again, it shows that there's more people uh, that end up in vegetative state after decompressive craniectomy possibly because more are surviving. Um, It's 8.5% versus 2.1, again, at six months. Um, And then we get into the low severe disability where they're still at a dependent state. Again, uh, decompressive craniectomy, 21.9%. Medical management, 14.4%. So again, having more uh, disabled individuals um, that have survived kind of still goes along with that theory. In this um, study, a favorable outcome or a good outcome was determined to be Anything from what they call upper severe disability, which is actually independent in the home and requires help outside of the home all the way up into uh, the good uh, recovery. So now we're getting into more of what they consider a favorable outcome. And these were... um, 15.4% 15.4% versus eight. So, you know, obviously more people, it's still a divisibility, but it's in the favorable measures for them.
0: 15.4% in the uh, decompressive craniectomy group.
1: Yes. Compared to 8% in the medical management for upper severe disability, again, independent in the home, but requiring assistance outside of it. Um, and then moderate disability, 23.4% versus 19.7%, again, favoring a decompressive craniectomy. And then the good outcomes um, were 4% versus 6.9%. But overall, what they found at six months, favorable outcomes, like we said, upper severe disability all the way up to good prognosis, was 42.8% of those that received the craniactomy compared to 34.6% that received just medical management. So obviously, more percentage of these patients are ending up in the favorable category.
0: So it seems that it's true that uh, more patients will be disabled, but that's associated with a lot more patients who are having good outcomes.
1: Yes, in this study that the way they described a favorable yeah, it is also showing that craniectomy is favorable for not only decreasing mortality, but increasing the amount of favorable outcomes with severe TBS. Um, if you uh, keep going out to the 12-month mark, they uh, collected the data at that point, too, and actually found a similar result. 45% um, in the surgery group and 32% in the medical group. So still at 12 months, still showing a greater percentage of favorable outcomes um, in the surgical group a uh, few other things they looked at um, icp control um, they looked at a few different measures i won't go into them too much but overall surgical measures did a better job of finally gaining control of the icp as then, um continued medical management uh, the amount of time spent in the icu was equal between the two groups but the time to discharge. Was actually, from the hospital was actually five days shorter for the craniectomy group,
0: which I was surprised. That is surprising. you think that they would have, yeah. you know, yeah. just because of the surgical procedure and everything.
1: Yeah. So overall, I mean, this is still um, a procedure that um, kind of people don't know which way to go necessarily because it has shown to have some more detrimental effects. And even in this study, it did have more adverse effects than the medical management group. However, it is showing an increased survival rate. It's showing an increased favorable outcome rate, according to what, to, what was defined by the study. It's showing that decompression can help finally gain control of the ICP and possibly quicker discharge. Know.
0: So, that, yeah, I guess, that, I mean, so this seems like it's pretty exciting, you know, information to have and something that can really be helpful in counseling our patients and uh, in in those of us that kind of practice more in the ICU uh, setting in terms of options and even functional it has a, you know, information about the functional outcome, you know, which is so important to a lot of, a lot of patients and their families. How would you, how would you counsel a patient or a family? Would you say, uh, if these first two tiers failed, go ahead, you know, it I would, you would recommend doing the uh, uh, hemicolectomy.
1: I think, yeah, this kind of is, I think this is great to show into the literature that's already out there, you know, showing that, you know, using this um, therapeutic option at different time points, obviously created different outcomes. A lot of people like to, you know, stay away from it because it has been shown to have all these adverse effects and possibly worsening outcomes. But um, if we find the correct uh, patient population to use it in, um, it looks like it is a good therapy. Um,
0: And doing it quick. Quicker, you know. I don't know if there's anything about you know time frame in this article, but um, having this protocol to go through to get to decompressive hemi uh, decompressive craniectomy sooner, uh, it's probably better. I would imagine.
1: Yeah, I think overall the study did a good job of you know not forcing the craniectomy early, but also not letting patients sit around with elevated ICPS that are uncontrolled, and they really um, made sure things were being done about it
0: um, um, early on. Yeah, that makes sense. That it, trying making a decision and going with it is probably the way to go because you're only doing damage having a patient sit with exactly. elevated exactly. ICPs. Yeah. And I guess uh, the other question: if you have a patient that or family that states that their loved one would not want to live with severe disability, would would that change your recommendations to the patient?
1: I mean, I th- I think you know if you're being completely honest that yeah i mean there's a greater risk that we're going to save someone that otherwise probably would have passed from from their degree of injury um and we can't guarantee that you know those severely injured individuals are going to get to that favorable podnosis. there is still a significant percentage that are in those lower categories um so i think that's definitely something that that has to be considered when you're making this decision
0: yeah and i guess that you know can point to different, you know, further directions to go in terms of trying to define which of those patients end up in which of those groups, whether it's, you know, the vegetative state or the, um, more good functional outcomes. Yeah. And, you know, you can always discuss with families, you know, with the patient, if they end up in one of these more severe, you know, categories, vegetative state or whatnot, how would they feel about later withdrawing care too, which is always, you know, a possibility.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is a decision that has to be made fairly quickly when it comes time for it. So I don't know, you know how much we put into, you know, counseling the family on it, but I think it's important things to like, for the physicians making these decisions.
0: Uh, Definitely you know, a role uh, for the physiatrist to come in and have some of these conversations about, you know, with the family about. What type of function and functional? Absolutely, uh, you can always
1: use this once you already know what decision has been made. To saying, you know, you know, this is what's been shown for for those that have gotten this type of treatment. So, and also going back to the the amount of time with elevated ICP, they actually did look at that. Um, the surgical group spent about five hours with elevated ICPs, which is greater than twenty five. The medical group, seventeen hours on average. Wow! So, wow! And it was a big.
0: All right. Well, th- thank you, Aaron, for uh, that great article from the Journal of Medicine. Um, you can always uh, email us at pmrblast at uh, gmail.com or follow us on iTunes or Podbeam or Google Play or wherever you get your podcast from. Uh, we're always looking for people to help out, uh, comments, uh, questions. We'd be happy to answer. Uh, feedback is always appreciated and will help us continue to evolve this podcast. Uh, Thank you guys, and we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.